0: Well, Good morning. It is good to be with you this morning. If you are a Seattle Seahawks fan, then you remember the NFC Championship game, which took place in January of 2015 with great fondness. You look back on the game with fondness in spite of the fact that about 95% of the game was painful to watch. Painful and frustrating. If you don't remember... That was the game in which uh, Seahawks played the Green Bay Packers in Seattle. And the Green Bay Packers had their way for most of the game. The Green Bay Packers dominated most of the game. The Seahawks' offense could not do anything. It was so hard to watch. As a matter of fact, according to profootballreference.com, the Packers' odds of winning were 94.4% at halftime and 99.9% with just more than three minutes left. Imagine that. Their odds of winning, 99.9% chance of winning with just over three minutes left to go in the game. That's how poorly the game was going for the Seahawks. The Seahawks were down 16-0 to at half, and then with five minutes left in the game, and the Seahawks trailing 19-7, to Russell Wilson threw his fourth interception of the game. And when he threw that fourth interception, most, probably all, probably every Seahawks fan thought, well, it's over. This game is over. What a terrible game. But then, shortly thereafter, the Seahawks got the ball back and quickly scored a touchdown. And then the unimaginable happened when the Seahawks recovered an onside kick and went down and scored another touchdown and converted on a two-point conversion. Packers tied it with, at the end of overtime, uh, regulation. Game goes into uh, overtime. The Seahawks win it on a beautiful touchdown pass. From what Russell Wilson, it was amazing. It was a dramatic reversal in a very short amount of time. And don't we love it when a dramatic reversal goes our way? Not so great for the other side, but we love it. Well, we are continuing our sermon series going through the book of Esther, and today we pick up in chapter 7. In chapter 7, we are going to see the completion of a dramatic reversal which happened in a short amount of time with the villain of our story, Haman. And yes, in my analogy, the Packers represent the evil Haman. If you happen to be a Packers fan, I apologize for nothing. Let's read chapter 7. So the king and Haman went to feast with Queen Esther, and on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, "'What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you, and what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled.' Then Queen Esther answered, "'If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish.'" And my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent. For our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he, and where is he, who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe and enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine-drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine, as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence, in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance, On the king said, moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high. And the king said, hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. In our passage, we see the wisdom and courage of Esther, the wrath of Ahasuerus, and the fall of Haman. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus sent out his disciples to different towns to preach the gospel. And he said to them, behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Because he was sending them into a dangerous situation whereby they would be surrounded by dangerous people, they were to be shrewd and cunning while maintaining their innocence. I think here in chapter 7, Esther provides a picture of one who is wise as a serpent and innocent as a dove while facing great danger because of the hatred and violence of Haman. One of the things Esther managed to pull off was getting the king to tell her three times that he would generously grant her request, whatever it might be. She first approached the king at the beginning of chapter 5, and he said, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you, even to the half of my kingdom. She asked him to come to a banquet. He came to the banquet, and at the banquet, he said, what is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled." She responded by inviting him to a second banquet. And finally, here in chapter 7, at the second banquet, he said, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Three times she got him to promise beforehand to fulfill her request before she even made her request known. How could he possibly say no to any request that she made when she got him to say three times that her wish would be granted to her? She had him in the perfect place to plead for her people, yet she still approached him with humility. She didn't say now listen, you have promised three times to grant my request, so here it is, and you had better do it because you said three times that you will do it, and everybody knows that you said you will do it, so you had better do it. No. She said, if I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted for my wish and my people for my request. Her response mirrored his question. What is your wish? What is your request? Let my life be granted for my wish, my people for my request. Then she dropped the bomb. My people have been sold to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. You can imagine the shock of the king. His queen, in whom he delighted, was among a group of people who were sold to be destroyed. She went on to say that if they had merely been sold as slaves, then she wouldn't even bother the king with the matter. After all, she said, our affliction wouldn't be compared to the loss of the king. What did she mean? Well, she seemed to be making an exaggerated statement that their affliction in slavery, had they merely been sold as slaves, would not compare to the loss of the king if he were to undo an edict selling them into slavery. But they were not merely sold as slaves. They were sold to be destroyed so the king would not even benefit from their labor as slaves. In making her request, she aligned herself with the king and his interests. She knew she could not appeal to his moral compass, his sense of right and wrong, She could not say, hey, listen, this is objectively wrong. This is wicked. This is sinful, what Haman has done. You should recognize that what he did is sinful, wicked, and wrong, and you should do the right thing because you, O king, always do the right thing. No, she couldn't say that. She could not appeal to his moral compass. Instead, she said, this edict doesn't benefit you. Also, by identifying with the Jewish people, she presented the edict of Haman as an attack on his queen. Let my life be granted. Ahasuerus would not dare to allow anyone to attack his queen. If she was going to be successful, she had to appeal to his pride and his interests. She skillfully aroused the king's anger on behalf of her and her people. Esther skillfully, tactfully, and wisely used her words and actions to obtain a favorable result sometimes we find ourselves in positions whereby we must navigate a difficult situation maybe it's a situation in the workplace or a situation with a family member or a difficult situation in school or a situation where you're trying to resolve a conflict between two people whatever the case may be we all find ourselves at one time or another navigating difficult situations And what we see in Scripture is that when we find ourselves in those situations, we need to apply wisdom skillfully without committing a sin. We are to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. We are to apply wisdom, tact, and skill to work toward favorable ends. Sometimes you need to speak up. Sometimes you need to shut up. Sometimes you need to share an opinion, and sometimes you need to keep an opinion to yourself. You might need to respond to one person one way while responding to another person in a different way. When it comes to doing the work of the ministry, each one of us is called to engage in this way. After all, Jesus used this language when sending his disciples to do gospel ministry. We are all called to do the work of the ministry. We are all ministers of the gospel. We need to recognize that. Jesus calls all of us to be missionaries wherever we are and ministers of the gospel. And we want to seek to advance the gospel and make disciples using wisdom and skill and tact while remaining innocent. And as we minister the gospel, sometimes that involves risk. Sometimes that involves opposition. Sometimes we find ourselves in difficult positions. And as we seek to share Christ and make disciples in a world that is hostile to Christ, we need to be smart, thoughtful, and shrewd. One approach with one person might not be the best approach with a different person. One approach in ministry in one context might be a terrible approach in a different context. We need to be mindful and thoughtful and shrewd and wise as we seek to engage others with the gospel of Jesus Christ. I was flying home A few years back, and I was sitting next to a couple who lived in Charlotte but were both from India. And I began to engage them in conversation. And this married couple I discovered was married because their marriage had been arranged. And uh, I began to just ask them questions. And part of the reason I was asking them questions, as many as I could, was because I was hoping that they might in turn asked me questions. That wasn't the only reason. I was interested in them, I cared about them, and so I began to ask them questions about their life, about their religion, about Hinduism, and they began to answer a lot of my questions. I confess, I probably came away more confused at the end of that than when I came in, but I just began to pepper them with questions and ask them about Hinduism and their beliefs and and follow-up questions, and they graciously answered the questions, and then sure enough, after I had asked my fair share of questions, they said, what about you? And I began to tell them, I'm a Christian. And I had the opportunity to unpack the whole gospel as they listened attentively to the gospel. And then he said to me, do you do marriage counseling? <laughs> do churches do marriage counseling? I was like, yeah, of course they do. And, and so I began to have a conversation and ask them where they live and find out where they live. And I actually referred them to a church nearby in their uh, hometown near Charlotte. And I had a couple of conversations on the phone with him after that. I don't know what happened there uh, there, uh, after, there after, after that time. I hope that seeds were planted. I hope the Lord used that. But sometimes we have to find ways to open those doors for the gospel. And sometimes that requires us to apply wisdom and tact and, and, and sh- be shrewd and yet innocent without sinning. We know that people are in spiritual danger apart from hearing the gospel and believing in Christ. And therefore, we should be shrewd and wise in our efforts to see others come to saving faith in Christ. In our passage, Esther applied wisdom and courage in her efforts to save the Jewish people. In our passage, we also see the wrath of the king. The wrath of King Ahasuerus is mentioned twice in chapter 7 when Esther revealed that Haman was behind the plot to kill her people. We read, And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. The king's wrath was provoked by Haman's betrayal when Esther exposed him as an enemy and a foe. The solution that would satisfy the wrath of the king was to put Haman to death. In verse 10 we read, So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. And while the king's wrath is mentioned twice in this chapter, the wrath of God is mentioned many times throughout Scripture. I think it's worthwhile, therefore, to consider the similarities and differences between the wrath of God and the wrath of Ahasuerus. Similarly, the wrath of both is a thing to be feared. When Haman incurred the king's wrath, it led to his execution. No one wanted to be on the receiving end of the king's wrath. It was a thing to be feared and avoided. We also ought to fear the wrath of God. Apart from someone who can save us from God's wrath, his wrath will lead to our destruction. No one should make the mistake of taking the wrath of God lightly. But of course, there are significant differences. King Ahasuerus was an unstable king, prone to drunkenness, easily manipulated, eager to display his own wealth and power lacking a strong moral compass and easily angered when his pride was hurt on the other hand j.i. packer writes god's wrath in the bible is never the capricious self-indulgent irritable morally ignoble thing that human anger so often is it is instead a right and necessary reaction to objective moral evil In other words, God's wrath is actually a good thing, and it's always a good thing. It is a right response to evil. It's a good thing that God is wrathful towards sin and evil. The only problem is that we are the ones who commit sin and do what is evil. So therefore, we ought to rightly fear the wrath of God. Another significant difference is that the wrath of Ahasuerus abated with the death of an enemy, while the wrath of God for us is satisfied through the death of his son. In Romans 5, 6 through 11, we read, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ The Lord has provided a way for us to escape his wrath. To avoid his wrath even though we deserve his wrath. If he were to give us what we deserve, we would be on the receiving end of his wrath. But in his love, in his kindness, in his mercy, he has provided a way for us to escape his wrath. And he did so at great cost to himself. He did so by providing Jesus Christ as a sacrifice to take the punishment for our sins in our place. He provided Jesus Christ, who absorbed God's wrath on our behalf. When we consider the death of Christ, when we consider his execution upon the cross, we know that it was a physically excruciating death. He was tortured in a way that is hard to imagine or comprehend. His death was awful. We also know that his death was more Than physically excruciating. At the cross, Jesus absorbed the wrath of God in place of God's people. And we know this because of what Jesus prayed the night before. He was put to death. He prayed, If it's possible, Lord, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. And that imagery of a cup being poured out is used in Scripture. Either to refer to the wrath of God or the blessings of God, more often to the wrath of God. This cup being poured out is an imagery depicting the wrath of God. And what Jesus was saying in this prayer is that he knew God's wrath was going to be poured out upon him at the cross. And therefore, his death was unique. The wrath of God was poured out on him for the sins of all God's people. And while we deserve God's wrath, for those of us who are, in, who are in Christ, we do not receive God's wrath. Because Christ has taken that upon himself in our place. Friend, if you're not a Christian, our hope and our desire for you is that you will come to know Christ. Christ that you will come to trust in him as your Lord and Savior. Our hope and prayer for you is that you will recognize that you have committed sins against God who created you. And because you have sinned against him, you are deserving of his wrath, of his judgment, just like all of us. But God has provided a way for you to receive forgiveness for your sins and the gift of eternal life, for you to escape his wrath. And he did so by providing Jesus. Now everyone who believes in Christ will be saved. If you're not a Christian, we implore you, believe in Christ and be saved. Finally in our passage, we see the downfall of Haman. Haman's rise and fall were utterly dramatic. He rose to the number two position in the entire Persian empire, accumulating wealth, receiving honor, and exercising power. But he couldn't handle the fact that one man refused to honor him. One man named Mordecai refused to honor him, and that ruined everything for him. He could not handle it, and so he took action, and he manipulated the king into issuing an edict with instructions to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews. His zeal for his own honor would prove to be his undoing. First, he would suffer complete and utter humiliation, and then he would suffer the fate he sought for Mordecai. He built gallows to have Mordecai hanged, but before he could even request to have Mordecai hanged, he was forced to honor Mordecai in the way he desired to be honored. And before he could recover from his humiliation, he was quickly summoned to Esther's second banquet. And when Esther made her uh, Uh, her dire situation known to the king, his first question was, who is responsible? Esther put the blame squarely on Haman. She said a foe, an enemy, the wicked Haman. And we read that Haman was terrified before the king and queen. And when the king stormed out of the room, Haman begged for his life from Queen Esther. And when the king returned to the room and saw Haman on the couch with Esther begging for his life, the king interpreted his actions as an assault on the queen, or at least that's what he said. One commentator speculated that he knew he was not trying to assault the queen, but he also knew that he did not have justification to have Haman put to death based on the edict, because after all, the king signed the edict That would reflect poorly on him, but this accusation that he was assaulting his queen would give him the grounds he desired to have him put to death. Whatever the case, Haman's actions in falling on Queen Esther's couch provided the king with justification to have Haman executed. And we don't get the impression that Haman made many close friends in the palace with how quickly the king's servants covered his face and told the king about the gallows Haman constructed. They were ready. Oh, they did not miss a beat. They did not waste a moment to put Haman down. And the king didn't miss a beat and had Haman executed on the gallows he had prepared for Mordecai. Haman's downfall was a stunning reversal. The author of Esther clearly wants us to see the hand of the Lord behind Haman's demise. In seeking honor for himself, he was forced to honor the man he despised the most. In seeking Mordecai's destruction, he brought about his own destruction. In putting the queen in the position to beg for her life, he was forced to beg for his life. In building gallows to have Mordecai executed, he provided the place of his own execution. There is no way we can chalk this up as an incredibly unlucky unlucky series of events for Haman. No, the Lord brought about this reversal. He brought about this reversal in order to deliver his people from destruction. Of course, this is not the only instance in Scripture where the Lord brings about a dramatic reversal to deliver his people. We might think of the book of Exodus when God's people were enslaved in Egypt under the wicked hand of Pharaoh. And yet the Lord acted in a powerful way to destroy Pharaoh and his armies. To bring about this reversal where the people of Israel were enslaved to where they were set free. We might think of the story of David and Goliath Goliath, where God's enemies were taunting them. They felt very confident in their champion, Goliath. They were in a good position and the people of Israel, God's people, were in a position of fear. They thought there's no way we can defeat Goliath. And God's enemies felt, felt very confident until this young shepherd boy came out with a few stones, and delivered one of them right into the forehead of Goliath, defeating their enemy, and all of a sudden the tables were turned in a moment, in a short period of time, there was a dramatic reversal, whereby all of a sudden God's enemies were the ones running in fear, and God's people were the ones who were confident because they had a Savior in David. Of course, the greatest reversal of all came through the cross of Jesus Christ, whereby God turned enemies into his friends. In 2 Corinthians 5, 21, we read, For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What a reversal. We who are sinners, we who are wicked, we who are unrighteous, God has made righteous through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was without sin, and yet the Lord treated him as though he was full of sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God the gospel is a great and dramatic reversal whereby God has turned us who were his enemies into his friends we were children of wrath and now we are children of God And the reversal brought about by Jesus is manifested in countless reversals that have taken place around the world and through the centuries. We see, for example, the dramatic reversal that took place in the life of Saul in the book of Acts. Saul was a Pharisee, he was a Jewish man who hated Christians, who actively and violently persecuted Christians, and yet he encountered Jesus Christ, the risen Lord Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus, and he went from being a persecutor of the church to being a great and prolific preacher of the gospel. And throughout church history, we have continued to see these great and dramatic reversals, and we are continuing to see them today. I want to share one of them with you now. There was a wonderful woman whose name is Rosaria Butterfield, who is a Christian uh, author and, and speaker. But before she became a Christian, she was far from God. And he, she describes her conversion in one sentence. If she were describe it in one sentence, she, she describes it this way. She said, as a leftist lesbian professor, I despised Christians. Then I somehow became one. I want to take a few moments, I want to take several minutes to read her testimony with you. It's a little bit on the long side, but it is incredibly powerful, and it speaks to God's power in bringing about these dramatic reversals. So bear with me as I read her testimony in her own words. She writes, The word Jesus stuck in my throat like an elephant tusk. No matter how hard I choked, I couldn't hack it out. Those who professed the name commanded my pity and wrath. As a university professor at Syracuse University, I tired of students who seemed to believe that knowing Jesus meant knowing little else. Christians in particular were bad readers, always seizing opportunities to insert a Bible verse into a conversation with the same point as a punctuation mark, to end it rather than deepen it. Stupid, pointless, menacing. That's what I thought of Christians and their God Jesus, who in paintings looked as powerful as a Breck shampoo commercial model. As a professor of English and women's studies, on the track to becoming a tenured radical, I cared about morality, justice, and compassion. Fervent for the worldviews of Freud, Hegel, Marx, and Darwin, I strove to stand with the disempowered, I valued morality, and I probably could have stomached Jesus and his band of warriors if it weren't for how other cultural forces buttressed the Christian right. Pat Robertson's quip from the 1992 Republican National Convention pushed me over the edge. Feminism, he sneered, encourages women to leave their husbands, kill their children, practice witchcraft, destroy capitalism, and become lesbians. Indeed, the surround sound of Christian dogma co-mingling with Republican politics demanded my attention after my tenure book was published I used my post to advance the understandable allegiances of a leftist lesbian professor my life was happy meaningful and full my partner and I shared many vital interests AIDS activism children's health and literacy golden retriever rescue our Unitarian Universal Church to name a few Even if you believe the ghost stories promulgated by Robertson and his ilk, it was hard to argue that my partner and I were anything but good citizens and caregivers. The LGBT community values hospitality and applies it with skill, sacrifice, and integrity. I began researching the religious right and their politics of hatred against queers like me. To do this, I would need to read the one book that had, in my estimation, gotten so many people off track, the Bible. While on the lookout for some Bible scholar to aid me in my research, I launched my first attack on the unholy trinity of Jesus, Republican politics, and patriarchy in the form of an article in the local newspaper about promise keepers. It was 1997. The article generated many rejoinders, so many that I kept a Xerox box on each side of my desk, one for hate mail and one for fan mail. But one letter I received defied my filing system. It was from the pastor of the Syracuse Reformed Presbyterian Church. It was a kind and inquiring letter. Ken Smith encouraged me to explore the kind of questions I admire. How did you arrive at your interpretations? How do you know that you are right? Do you believe in God? Ken didn't argue with my article. Rather, he asked me to defend the presuppositions that undergirded it. I didn't know how to respond to it, so I threw it away. Later that night, I fished it out of the recycling bin and put it back on my desk where it stared at me for a week, confronting me with the worldview divide that demanded a response. As a postmodern intellectual, I operated from a historical, materialist worldview. But Christianity is a supernatural worldview. Ken's letter punctured the integrity of my research project without him knowing it. With the letter, Ken initiated two years of bringing the church to me, a heathen. Oh, I had seen my share of Bible verses on placards at gay pride marches. That Christians who mocked me on Gay Pride Day were happy that I and everyone I loved were going to hell was as clear as the blue sky. That is not what Ken did. He did not mock, he engaged. And so when his letter invited me to get together for dinner, I accepted. My motives at the time were straightforward. Surely this will be good for my research. Something else happened. Ken and his wife Floy and I became friends. They entered my world, they met my friends. We did book exchanges. We talked openly about sexuality and politics. They did not act as if such conversations were polluting them. They did not treat me like a blank slate. When we ate together, Ken prayed in a way I had never heard before. His prayers were intimate, vulnerable. He repented of his sin in front of me. He thanked God for all things. Ken's God was holy and firm, yet full of mercy." And because Ken and Floyd did not invite me to church, I knew it was safe to be friends. I started reading the Bible. I read the way a glutton devours. I read it many times that first year in multiple translations. At a dinner gathering my partner and I were hosting, my transgendered friend Jay cornered me in the kitchen. She put her large hand over mine. This Bible reading is changing you, Rosaria, she warned. With tremors, I whispered, Jay, what if it's true? What if Jesus is a real and risen Lord? What if we are all in trouble? Jay exhaled deeply. Rosaria, she said, I was a Presbyterian minister for 15 years. I prayed that God would heal me, but he didn't. If you want, I will pray for you. I continued reading the Bible and all the while fighting the idea that it was inspired. But the Bible got bigger inside me than I. It overflowed into my world. I fought against it with all my might. Then one Sunday morning, I rose from the bed of my lesbian lover and an hour later sat in a pew at the Syracuse Reformed Presbyterian Church. "'Conspicuous with my butch haircut, "'I reminded myself that I came to meet God not fit in. "'The image that came in like waves "'of me and everyone I loved suffering in hell "'vomited into my consciousness and gripped me in its teeth. "'I fought with everything I had. "'I did not want this. "'I did not ask for this. "'I counted the costs, and I did not like the math "'on the other side of the equal sign. "'But God's promises rolled in "'like sets of waves into my world. "'One Lord's Day, Ken preached on John 7, 17.' If anyone wills to do God's will, he shall know concerning the doctrine. This verse exposed the quicksand in which my feet were stuck. I was a thinker. I was paid to read books and write about them. I expected that in all areas of life, understanding came before obedience. And I wanted God to show me on my terms why homosexuality was a sin. I wanted to be the judge, not one being judged. But the verse promised understanding after obedience. I wrestled with the question, did I really want to understand homosexuality from God's point of view, or did I just want to argue with him? I prayed that night that God would give me the willingness to obey before I understood. I prayed long into the unfolding of day. When I looked in the mirror, I looked the same. But when I looked into my heart through the lens of the Bible, I wondered, am I a lesbian, or has this all been a case of mistaken identity? If Jesus could split the world asunder, divide marrow from soul, could he make my true identity prevail? Who am I? Who will God have me to be? Then, one ordinary day, I came to Jesus, open-handed and naked. In this war of worldviews, Ken was there. Floyd was there. The church that had been praying for me for years was there. Jesus triumphed, and I was a broken mess. Conversion was a train wreck. I did not want to lose everything that I loved, the voice of God sang a sanguine love song in the rubble of my world. I weakly believed that if Jesus could conquer death, he could make right my world. I drank tentatively at first, then passionately of the solace of the Holy Spirit. I rested in private peace, then community, and today in the shelter of a covenant family. I have not forgotten the blood Jesus surrendered for this life. And my former life lurks in the edges of my heart, shiny and still like a knife. I love the story, the testimony of Rosaria Butterfield because if you would have known her before she became a Christian, you might be tempted to think that she was the last person you'd ever expect to become a Christian. And yet the Lord clearly worked in her life in a powerful way. He worked in her life through the kindness and gentleness of this Pastor Ken and his wife Floyd and through their hospitality They did not mock her, they did not demean her, they weren't trying to win this culture war, they were trying to love someone and share Christ with them. And oh, what a reversal, what a dramatic reversal. And brothers and sisters, the Lord is working dramatic reversals today. When we are tempted to believe that someone will never come to faith in Christ, we must remember that the Lord brings about dramatic reversals. At the end of chapter 6, Haman's wife and friends said, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. And By the end of chapter 7, Haman's fall was complete. The reversal was abrupt and dramatic. Through the courage and shrewdness of Esther and the wrath of Ahasuerus, Haman was defeated and destroyed. We have learned a lot through our study of Esther, but the biggest point of emphasis throughout our series has been the way the sovereign hand of the Lord is at work, seemingly behind the scenes to accomplish his purposes and deliver his people. The Lord is at work even when the immoral and incompetent are in positions of power. The Lord is at work even through terrible processes like the one that Esther and many other women were subjected to when the king sought to find a new queen. The Lord is at work even when the Lord's people don't seem to acknowledge Him or be aware of Him. The Lord's hand is at work even when enemies of God's people rage and plot violence. The Lord's hand is at work. But isn't it interesting how the Lord accomplishes His purposes through people who take action. The Lord used Esther. The Lord used her tact, her skill, her approach, her method. The Lord used the actions of Haman, the actions of Mordecai, the actions of King Ahasuerus to bring about his purposes to accomplish his will. On the one hand, The characters in Esther understood, Esther and Mordecai understood that they needed to take action. They needed to do something. But what does the author of Esther want us to see? The author of Esther wants us to see that this was the Lord's doing. It was the sovereign hand of the Lord. And so on the one hand, we are to be people who are confident, who have extraordinary confidence In the sovereign hand of the Lord, we ought to be people who have great faith that the Lord is accomplishing all of his good purposes in our lives and in our world, even when things don't go the way we desire them to go. On the one hand, we are to be confident in the Lord's sovereign working. At the same time, we are to take action and to do the things the Lord commands us to do. We are to engage. We are to engage in the work of the ministry. Knowing that the Lord will save his people. We are to engage at work. We are to engage at home. We are to engage in government. We are to engage in all of these things. Seeking to do what is good and right in the eyes of the Lord. Seeking to apply the scripture to our hearts and lives. All all the while knowing... That the results are not ultimately in our hands, but they are in the hands of the Lord. When we look at the book of Esther, we see that there was a government official who was conspiring to do evil in such a way that would destroy God's plan to bring about a Savior, a Messiah through the Jewish people. And what does the Lord do? He thwarts his plan. Brothers and sisters, we need to see that the Lord will accomplish his good purposes. We engage. We do what the Lord has called us to do in whatever spheres of influence he's given us, but we do so knowing that he will prevail, that he will win, that all of his good purposes will come to pass. We do not engage as if Everything depends on us, or everything depends on a particular outcome that we are looking for. The kingdom of God does not depend on us. It does not depend on a particular outcome that we are working for or hoping for. Even when the incompetent or immoral are in power, the Lord is accomplishing his good purposes. This government official, using his power for evil, could not prevail against the Lord's purposes. And that is true today. Today. Even today, when the immoral or incompetent are in power, the Lord will accomplish His good purposes. As followers of Christ, we need to know this, and we need to demonstrate this. We should not be people who give the impression that the kingdom of God depends on a particular election outcome. That is not true. Again, we engage, but we engage knowing that the Lord will accomplish His good purposes. And therefore, we should not respond the way the world responds. We should not act as though the kingdom of God rises and falls on a particular election. We engage and we trust in the Lord. We find peace in Him and our confidence is Him. And therefore, we are free to engage and to do the things that he commands us to do, knowing that he holds all things in his hands. He will prevail, he will win, and he will bring about everything that he desires to bring about. And brothers and sisters, that gives us freedom. That gives us freedom to do what he's called us to do, knowing that ultimately and finally, everything is in his hands. So I hope and I pray that the book of Esther strengthens us and grows us to that end. You see, I think the book of Esther is helpful for us because most of us, I don't think, have seen fire come down from heaven on an altar like Elijah saw. We haven't seen the great plagues that the Lord brought about like the book of Exodus. The Lord is working behind the scenes in our, in our lives and in our world much in the same way that he was in the book of Esther. So I think the book of Esther is particularly relevant For us, as followers of Christ today, living in exile, just as Mordecai and Esther were living in in exile, we are able to trust the Lord. We are able to have confidence in him. And thus, we are able to faithfully engage in everything that he calls us to do and everything that he commands us to do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the book of Esther. We pray, Lord, that you would grow our understanding of you grow our confidence in you and how you are working in our lives and in our world. And we pray that as you grow our confidence in you, we will have freedom in walking in obedience to you and engaging in the ways you call us to engage and doing the things you command us to do. We pray that you would help us to be faithful ministers of the gospel. We pray that you would help us to be wise and innocent, Help us to be bold and courageous. Help us to be gentle and kind. We pray that you would use us to accomplish your good purposes, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.